Good morning, everyone. Thank you for coming together today to practice and support each other in practice. We've just finished a very lovely retreat this weekend with Blanche Zenke Hartman, who was the abbess of San Francisco Zen Center for many years, (laughs) and then uh, retired from that position and is doing what she loves to do, which is to teach sewing practice. And she came for the weekend and worked with us with sewing practice. And what we were sewing was what we call the Buddha's robe. So this, this robe, this brown robe that I'm wearing here, is a replica of the Buddha's robe with the bowing cloth. Because in India and other countries, people sat on the ground to teach and to learn. So they needed a cloth for bowing and a cloth for sitting on. We call this the zagu. So these in some traditions are hand-sewn, although you can buy them from catalogs. And Zenke trained in a, in a sewing tradition, which I'll tell you about in a minute. So she came to help us do some sewing. We, well, there wasn't anybody actually, well, there was one person who was sewing a zagu, a bowing mat, an ordained person from Seattle. And then some people were working on the small version of the Buddha's robe, which in Japanese we call a raksu. So this is a pattern similar to the larger robe, but small and worn by lay people who have taken the precepts and also by uh, clergy when they're doing uh, something that's less formal, a less formal kind of teaching or activity. And it's also said that, th- that this was worn in times of persecution. Small versions of the robe were worn in times of persecution of Buddhism because they could be hidden under the clothing and you could go um, uh, around re- uh, and be aware of your um, Buddhist life <coughs> because it was touching your skin, but you wouldn't be obvious to other people that, that you were a Buddhist. So I'd like to give <coughs> a talk related to the a weekend workshop that we did. We try to do this when we've had a workshop or a retreat so that the people who come on Sunday can have a little flavor of what's been going on at the monastery during the week or over the weekend. Today is, I believe, March 13th, 2005. And I'm going to read a few portions from Dogen Zenji's teaching on the merit of the Kesa, Kesa Kudoku, uh, as part of the talk. Zenke mentioned Dogen Zenji's teachings on the Kesa and how these were revived in this sewing tradition. The Kesa Kudoku, the merit of, of the Kesa, begins with the Buddhist Kesa, which is this robe, which has been correctly handed down through the successive line of Buddhas since Shakyamuni Buddha, was transmitted into China by Bodhidharma, the 28th patriarch. And then he continues with the lineage through the Indian ancestors and then the Chinese ancestors. And then Dogen Zenji is our first Japanese ancestor. So he talks about the Kesa being handed down generation after generation. In this retreat with Zenke, we heard about a tradition in which the practice of Hand sewing this robe was revived in Japan. So Zenke learned this from her sewing teacher, Joshin. And Joshin's tradition came through Sawaki Kodo Roshi, 
and so on. So there's a li there's a sewing lineage, and the the tradition of hand sewing the robes is actually goes back to the time of the Buddha, as Enke mentioned, the King Bimbasara, who had become a Buddhist, converted to Buddhism, at one time saw what he thought was a Buddhist monk, Buddhist monk, and got down off of his elephant to pay homage because the the only person that the emperor or the king would bow to was a Buddhist priest, and and then discovered it wasn't one of the Buddha's priests after all, one of the Buddhist monks after all, and so was irritated and disappointed and asked the Buddha to make a distinctive robe so that he would know from the distance of riding on his elephant and seeing someone far away whether he should get down or and bow or not. And the Buddha asked his personal attendant, Ananda, to design a robe based on a rice field, which they happened to be passing at the time they were having this discussion about the robe, the necessity for a robe. So this robe and the small uh, version, the Okesa, the Raksu, are designed on the pattern of a rice field. And there are many um, deeper meanings to the rice field, and I'll mention a few of them as, as she did too. So during this retreat, in silence, we measured material and cut material and stitched material. And some people were working on the Jesus for Peace prayer flags cutting and ironing and stitching them. And we all learned a special stitch that requires extra attention, extra mindfulness. And while doing this stitch, you chant, and one of the traditional chants is Namu Kie Butsu. So Namu as the needle is inserted and Kie as it com comes out and then Butsu as you pull the thread. So this is, I take refuge in the Buddha then I take refuge in the Dharma, I take refuge in the Sangha. So doing that chant as you stitch brings extra attention to what you're doing with your hands and creates a field of mindfulness. The reason that the Buddha's robes have been venerated is exactly the reason that a sewing retreat, something as simple as sitting in silence and sewing together, can begin to transform our lives. It's not the cloth and it's not the thread that are venerated. There are robes that are made out of very beautiful brocade and gold, stitched with gold or silver thread. And you can buy them for hundreds of thousands of dollars in Japan. And they, they are very beautiful. They're, they're objects of veneration just because they're beautiful works of art. But that's not why we venerate the Buddha's robe. The cloth and the thread are symbols of the true Buddha's robe. And the true Buddha's robe is our true clothing. There's a story of an ancestor who is born with an okesa on. And what does that mean, to be born with an okesa on? These stories are stories of our lives, not just stories of one person's lives. We're all born with our true garment. We're all born naked. We're all born innocent. We're all born with that pure, clear awareness that is completely unstained and unsullied by thought, by reactivity. And then, of course, as the world intrudes on us and 
buffets us and interacts with us, then gradually we form thoughts and form emotions and form a personality and we form a particular garment that we call a personality with which we wrap ourselves and interact with the world and interact with other people's garments and personalities. And unfortunately, those garments get thicker and thicker as we think we have to protect ourselves, particularly if we're raised in difficult situations, until they become armor and that armor becomes a prison. So when we work with the cloth and the thread, or when we venerate the Buddha's robes, and Dogen Zenji talks about Buddha's robes being brought to emperors and emperors bowing to the, to the robes, the bowing is not to the robes, it's bowing to our true nature, our true clothing, which is no clothing. It's our pure nakedness, stripped down to the emptiness that is at our core. It's the garment of enlightenment that we're venerating. This garment is vast. We, when we put on our robe in the morning, we chant, vast is the robe, or how great the robe of liberation. And it's so vast that it has no boundaries at all. It has no center. It has no reference point because there's no me and no you in it. It is only one immeasurable eternal thing. And that field of benefaction, we translate it benefaction in our chant in the morning, but another chant is field of happiness. That field of benefaction or happiness is home to all creatures. Just like the rice field that was the inspiration for the original Buddha's robe is home to millions of creatures, or bacteria and fungi in the soil and in the water, <coughs> protozoa, earthworms, insects, dragonflies, butterflies, many birds, ducks, geese, weeds, <coughs> rice plants, human beings. Millions of creatures exist together in a rice field. And the cycle of life is continually renewed in a rice field. So that field of benefaction, that field of happiness contains all beings, and that is our life. Dogen Zenji wrote, our bodies are in a constant state of flux, subject to incessant existences and non-existences. Even though this is so, the merit accrued by wearing the kesa and by consistent practice of the way will finally lend itself to our realization of the true meaning of the kesa. We will be able to transcend the cycle of life and death, and finally we will realize Buddhahood. A person who has failed to do good in a previous life will be prevented from seeing, receiving, or comprehending the significance of a kesa for one, two, or even innumerable lives. Our bodies are in a constant state of flux, subject to incessant existences and non-existences. So this truth is the truth of the rice field, in a constant state of flux, living and dying, living and dying, over and over again, eternally. Because we live in a temperate climate, and the Japanese did too, we tend to think of a rice field as having a time in the spring when it's planted, and then in the summer when it grows, and then in the fall when it's harvested, and in the winter when it lies fallow. But actually, if you go to countries like India, where this whole practice and idea of the robe like a rice field originated, 
because the climates are so warm, several crops can be planted in a year. For instance, in Bali, you will see uh, newly plowed rice fields next to rice fields that, have, that are um, coming to fruition, next to rice fields that have just been planted, next to rice fields that have been harvested and are lying fallow. So this is also the implication of the pattern of the rice field, that in our practice, we are continually planting seeds of enlightenment. We are continually cultivating them. We are continually harvesting them and tasting the fruit of our practice. And there are times also in our practice when things have to be let alone, to be let fallow. The, you know, the, the tradition of letting something lie. So there are times when people step back from practice even and don't practice for a while. Let's say it's one day a week or let's say it's for a month or a year and then they return to practice. There's a maturing sometimes of shifts that have happened in our practice that has to be honored. So this in, a, in, our, in our life of practice is hap- happening simultaneously and continuously within us. And much of it is happening below the level of the conscious mind. If the conscious mind has the intention for transformation to occur, for us to return to our pure original nature, wearing the garment of emptiness, then that will happen in all these various ways, plowing, cultivating, planting, harvesting, lying fallow simultaneously. Our bodies are in a constant state of flux, subject to incessant existence and non-existence. This is the truth of our practice and the truth that the robe teaches to us. Dogen Zenji also wrote in the Kesa Kudoku, since ancient times the Kesa has been called the robe of detachment. When a person wears the Kesa, she is relieved of the effects of bad karma, delusion, and desire. A dragon that merely obtains one thread of the Kesa can free itself of the three kinds of suffering, and an ox that only touches a Kesa with its horns will be exonerated from the effects of its past bad deeds. The Buddhas all wore a kesa at the time of their enlightenment. Surely this is evidence enough that the merit for wearing the kesa is immeasurable. So we didn't know that ox had to worry about their bad deeds, did we? (laughs) Or that dragons uh, were subject to three kinds of suffering. So again, this is talking about us. It's not talking about mythical beings in in a long past time. This is talking about our lives. Since ancient times, the case has been called the robe of detachment. People found this weekend that as they sewed in silence together, that they entered a state of detachment, which we could call the state of meditation, where we lift free of our own inner turmoil, the anxiety in our hearts and the chaotic turning of our thoughts to past and future. So we enter a marvelous detachment, a meditative state where we drop our worries about productivity, getting done in time. And then insights were arising and old memories of loving times in the past were arising. And we come back to our origin, to our original garment, honoring our origins, honoring our ancestors. And wisdom arises from this field by itself. The harvest harvests itself 
if we just get out of the way, the plants grow beautifully in our field of practice. So dragons suffering from three kinds of suffering, if they obtain one thread of acacia, can free themselves. There are people who have a fiery and proactive way of dealing with things. You could call them dragon people. This is their habitual way of dealing with their suffering, of trying to burn it up or push it away or fight it. Dragons are always fighting. Hmm? Or sometimes dragons are hoarding their treasure. So these are all ways that we all work with our own discomfort, our own unhappiness. And then there are ox people, people who withdraw, people who go into silence, people who get more and more stubborn or more and more resistant as a way of dealing with their unhappiness and their suffering. Dogen Zenji is saying that everyone, everyone, dragons and oxen and earthworms and insects, dragonflies, sparrows, rice plants, weeds, and all kinds of people, everyone can reach liberation when they touch, touch the true garment, the true garment that is our life, which is continually being woven. Dogen Zenji writes, the, all Buddhas wore a kesa at the time of their enlightenment. Of course they wore a kesa at the time of their enlightenment. Actually, because we know that it was after Buddha's enlightenment that he asked Ananda to make the okesa, we know that the Buddha wasn't wearing a cloth okesa of this form at the time of his enlightenment. So what does this mean? All Buddhas wore a kesa at the time of their enlightenment. It means that they were, that they became the actual fabric of liberation. That their lives became the kesa that their lives became this formless field of benefaction at the time of enlightenment. They were born into the garment at that time, the garment which they had had since before they were born. But at that time, we truly don the garment. We truly put it on. Benefaction is a lovely word because it means to do good. And when we awaken, as we become enlightened, we are able to do good simply through our presence in the world. The Buddha was able to transform people's lives simply through his presence. And we all know people that are able to do that, that are at least able to inspire us through their presence. Benefaction. Dogen Zenji wrote, in both China and Japan, there are those who wear the kesa and those who do not. Whether one does or not has no relation to one's social rank, nor is it determined by one's level of intelligence. Rather, it is decided by one's actions in past lives. Those who have been fortunate enough to wear the kesa should know this. They should not question the merit attained, but instead rejoice at having done those good deeds. People who wish to wear the kesa, but as yet have not done so, should immediately begin to cultivate their innate seed of good. As a result, their wish will be actualized in the future. There are those who wear the kesa and those who do not. Whether one does or not has no relation to one's social rank, 
intelligence is decided by one's actions in past lives. So the fact that you are here practicing today, Sunday morning, March 13th, at about 11.45, is due to past good deeds, yours and other people's. It is very, very fortunate that we are able to be here, that we are not struggling with ill health, we're not dying, we're not struggling to run away from bullets in a war zone, we're not struggling to find enough food to keep ourselves from starving to death, we're struggling to find shelter to keep ourselves out of terrible weather. At this moment, we are extremely, we are extremely fortunate and that fortune is the result of what we and others have done in the past. This passage says that everyone can reach liberation. To be true freedom, to be lasting freedom, it must apply in all circumstances. When we are running away from bullets, when we are starving, when we are sick, when we are dying. So the practice that we do now will bear fruit in the difficult times of our lives. That's the reason we practice in the good times, is so when the bad times come along, we have the practice as a foundation, something that we have done over and over and over again until it's second nature and we can touch it. And we have confidence that it's there because we've been doing it for so long, under so many circumstances. To be true freedom, to be lasting freedom, to be real freedom, it has to be available to all. It has to be fair. Liberty for all. The possibility, the pursuit of happiness for all. But we each have to do our spiritual work. Twice in the last month, an interesting question has come up, and I always pay attention when the same slightly odd question comes up. We were doing a class on preparing for your own death, and somebody had been reading the Tibetan book of the dead or the Tibetan book of living and dying and had become concerned that because they hadn't had a life of doing these specific exercises to prepare for death that and then the Tibetan book of the dead describes these frightening potentially frightening episodes in the bardo state after death that could lead you back into suffering could draw you back into suffering what would happen after death and there are so many cultural elements that have been added to Buddhism over 2,500 years, just as there have to Christianity and Judaism. So it always helps to return back to what the Buddha said. And the Buddha was very clear on this point because there was a man who was listening to the Buddha's uh, sermons and was feeling happiness and feeling uh, clarity and feeling open-hearted having listened to what the Buddha said and been in the Buddha's radiant presence. But then his mind jumped to the future, as our mind always does. And he said to the Buddha, well, he got worried and said to the Buddha, well, what, I feel really, really good now and very open and spacious, but what if on the way home I should be attacked by a mad elephant and trampled to death and my last, in my last moments I'm afraid? Then what will my destination be when I die? 
Well, that's what the mind does. You know, it's, it can barely rest in happiness for some reason. It's just it's always worrying about, well, what, when the, what about when this happiness disappears, rather than just enjoying the happiness. So that's how we turn happiness into suffering instantly. So the Buddha said, do not worry. Just as oil rises to the top of a jar, what you have done all of these years of your lives, of your life, and what you have done just now by taking in this, this truth and being able to feel it in your body and your mind, that's what will rise to the top, even if your last moment is filled with terror or fear or dementia or whatever, whatever comes, uh, comes, comes our way. We can't control our death. We can prepare for it as best we can through the intention to become awakened and practicing to become awakened. And that intention, the energy of volition and tension, is karma. That's what karma means. And it's that energy that goes forward that determines what happens to us, not just after we die, but now, this moment, this next moment, this next moment, this next moment. That's the substance of the robe of liberation, this intention to awaken. Everyone can reach liberation. Everyone has all the raw materials to weave their own robe of liberation. We have to do our spiritual work, whether it's reading, praying, meditating, practicing loving-kindness, practicing simple kindness, random acts of kindness, being generous, helping whoever's in front of us. This robe is woven of an attitude of mind and heart, a mind that is open and curious, interested in what the next moment will bring, and a heart that is willing to do what is asked. It's an attitude inside of us that makes the Buddha's robe manifest in our lives. In Dogen Zenji's time, there were various arguments, and also in the Buddhist time, about what the robe could be made of. And the robe is traditionally made of discarded cloth, cloth that other people have used, and then it's become soiled in various ways, like used for wrapping bodies, or partially burnt on the burning ghats, or uh, used to wipe up blood, or pus, or excrement, and so on, or chewed by rats, or um, dogs. And then the uh, Buddha's disciples would collect this leftover cloth and cut away the um, parts that couldn't be used and then wash the material. And they used saffron, actually, which is a still used as a disinfectant. They used various herbs, including saffron, to wash the cloth so it would stain a yellow or an orange or a brown, according to the saffron or turmeric or other things that were used to wash it, to disinfect it. And then it was sewn uh, in patches together in this uh, form of the rice field. So even at the time of the Buddha, there are cute passages where monks show up wearing robes that they have decorated the bottoms with cowrie shells or owl's wings, and the Buddha has to make a rule, no sewing cowrie shells onto your robes, and no, showing, no sewing owl's wings onto your robes. You can imagine where in the world did monks get owl's wings. I don't want to even think about it. <laughs> but in Dogen Zenji's time, one of the debates was silk, because to make silk, you have to 
kill the worm inside the cocoon. You boil the cocoon, which makes the silk strong, and then the silk can be unwound from the cocoon. So there was a debate about using silk and whether that was appropriate or not, or whether we should just use animal uh, plant fibers like cotton or linen. And Dogen Zenji's comment is that the, uh, this argument about silk being derived from a living source, he said, what cloth is there that does not originate from a living source? What cloth is there that does not originate from a living source? So the robe of the Buddha, the robe of liberation, is made of living beings. And beyond what we think of as living beings, this whole argument, our way of dividing things into living and non-living, the robe of liberation is made of all beings. It is made of rocks and trees and grass and silk and cotton and linen and fish and insects, and geese, and owl's wings, and cowrie shells, and clouds. <laughs> it is made of all beings. What is there that is not alive? It's only we that divide it into dead and alive. And this robe of liberation is made of no material at all. No material but constant flux constant change. Constant change practiced by us continually. So when we make a Buddha's robe and venerate a Buddha's robe, we are venerating what has been cut up. And that is our practice, to take our life apart, to disassemble what we have assembled we have cobbled together a human being that works, but not very well. There are parts that are completely unnecessary that are weighing us down, that are preventing us from being truly alive. So in our practice, we disassemble, we take the cloth of the self and cut it into parts. And we discard what is not useful anymore. What we've chewed over what we've burnt, what has become soil because we've used it so often and we don't need to use it anymore. All of our old patterns of reactivity, conditioning, so much of it unneeded, developed when we were three or five or 10 or 12, doesn't apply anymore. And then we sew our life back together with the useful bits, the bits of wisdom the bits of insight, the bits of loving-kindness, the bits of generosity. And we sew those back together into a new life. And we do that moment by moment. It isn't like we assemble ourselves as the Buddha robe and that's it. Our practice is done. This is something that happens moment after moment continuously. Disassembling. As we meditate, we let it all go. We let it all fall apart. And we enter the place between all the parts, the space of emptiness, the true Buddha's robe. 
And then when it's time to get up and chant, we pull it all back together again and up we get and we do a bow with all these pieces, these elements held together. But continually we have to take it apart and put it back together again. When we stitch with this Namu Kie Butsu stitch, I take refuge in the Buddha. What we are taking refuge in is this new moment. This new moment. We take it apart and then we put it back together. We put it back together as a life of sunshine and fresh air and yellow daffodil petals and children laughing and a nice lunch. Thank you.